Um, let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this Thursday morning. We're thankful for another opportunity to learn. And we pray that as we open the, the Bible today, and then as Patty shares with us, that we learn things that are valuable, that will help us in the days ahead to be faithful stewards and to help others. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I want you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to open up to a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. Today we're talking about the issue of planning and specifically estate planning and what that means. We have attorney Patty McKinney with us today. We're so glad that she was willing to come. We have the privilege of working with her on a daily basis um, when it comes to estate planning. Some of you have worked through your estate plan with us. Um, and you probably had Patty, you know who she is, you spoke with her on the phone, now you get to see her face um, <laughs> uh, work with you. And we're going to talk a little bit at the end about what we can do as a conference to help you with your estate planning. But here we see a parable, and I, I want to um, start in verse 13, because Jesus tells this parable after an encounter he has with someone. So we're going to start in verse 13, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So what is that, what is that talking about? When, when do you divide an inheritance? When do you get an inheritance? When mom and dad passed away, right? So he's saying, hey, listen, tell my brother to split this thing with me. So what is that telling you about the situation? There's a little tension, right? A little tension. Now, I've been in this, this field of estate planning for a little over five years now. And as a pastor, I saw this, but I, I never, never have seen it so clear as I do now. The tension that comes when mom and dad pass away. Brothers and sisters, siblings that are in perfect harmony before now are at odds. And we see that here. It says, but he said to the man, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, and take note of this in verse 15, Take heed and beware of what? Covetousness. Now, doesn't, doesn't the Ten Commandments say something about that? Yeah, thou shalt not covet, right? So he says, beware of covetousness. Beware of it. All covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Well, that's a direct opposition to what the world tells us, right? The world says, no, life is all about what you possess. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not that at all. And then he tells them this parable. He spoke this parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, you, we've been talking about this this whole week, that, that everything we have isn't ours, it belongs to God. But what happens many times is we start to think that those things belong to us. That we 
own them. Now, we have a responsibility. That responsibility is to make sure that we use God's stuff God's way, right? And when you do look at estate planning, that's what that's all about. Because don't think that when you die, your stewardship responsibilities are over. They're not. That's why estate planning is so important. Because you are held accountable still for the things that God's placed in your hands to manage for Him after you die. That's why having an attorney like Patty write up your will or, or have a trust or something like that where it, it designates where these things are to go is a very important part of stewardship. That's why your church, the Michigan Conference, has a plan giving trust services department that myself and Pastor Gene and Mona works in um, because we realize that's the capstone of stewardship. So today we're going to talk about a few things when it comes to the estate planning. Our attorney, Patty McKinney, I mentioned earlier, she practices out of Grand Rapids, lives in Allegan. Are you still the treasurer down there? I am. Still the treasurer in Allegan. Um, she's a, a wonderful woman, a good Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and she's going to share with us some, some very um, uh, particular things when it comes to powers of attorney and probate. But she's also going to be open for questions, okay? So you have some questions, and we're going to field those questions as we go, so that if we're dealing with this topic, you just raise your hand, um, and she'll call, and at the end, we'll do some more questions, okay? But I just wanted to mention here that when it comes to, to estate planning, when it comes to this whole situation, the main thing we have to remember is that our life does not consist in the stuff we have. Our life consists in Christ, right? Amen? Okay, Patty, why don't you come up, and I'm, I'm going to give this to you, because we want to record every word. I'm glad for this opportunity to um, meet with you today. I um, am grateful for all these friendly faces, and even some familiar faces. Um, some of my uh, church family from the neighboring church, and and some of uh, one of my dad's pals is here. Good to see you all. Um, the, our, our topic this morning is planning ahead. And as a part of that, um, I thought that I would talk about a couple of situations that I've encountered recently that um, just point to the, the necessity for um, planning ahead as um, it was said earlier that our, our responsibilities don't end at our death in terms of the stewardship uh, piece of things. Um, I thought that I would talk about a, a case that um, I'm currently involved in um, that points this out in a really big way. Um, in addition to doing estate planning, I also do um, some family uh, law work. And I have a custody case right now that involves four children who had a terrible tragedy happen in their life just over a year ago. Um, their mother, who was in her, she had just turned 40, um, had a blood clot and had no awareness that she had this blood clot and um, died, just no warning. Two days later, 
the father essentially died of a broken heart. Four children and all of a sudden no parents. And the oldest child was 14 years old. Now the parents had thought about who they would want to take care of their children in the event of their untimely death. And they'd had extensive conversations with an aunt and uncle who had agreed that they would, would take the children. And they'd even gone out and bought life insurance, and they'd named the aunt and uncle as beneficiaries. They had a large retirement plan, um, and they had even named the aunt and uncle as beneficiaries on this retirement plan. And the total amount of, of money that they had left behind was about a half million dollars. What they hadn't done was um, have a will drafted, and they hadn't formally designated a guardian for their children. These, the, the family lived in Alabama with no formal documents. Guess what? There was a war between the two sides of the family. One side of the family lived in California. One side of the family lived in Michigan. The aunt and uncle who were, had agreed to take the children were in Alaska. So everybody's traveling for this big war down to Alabama to figure out who gets the children. Um, some gr the grandparents from Michigan are the ones that ended up with the children. And now there is a war about who's going to get to visit with the children. Do the California grandparents get to see them? Do the Alaska aunt and uncle get to see them? And this is um, all because there was not the follow-through and the planning to do that one last piece that would have um, protected these children. The parents had been concerned about religious training, what sort of religious training these children would have after they passed away. Um, none of that is happening now because they were placed with grandparents who don't have any of the same convictions that the parents had. Um, and. And, and a war continues. With the youngest child being seven, it's probably going to go on for the next 10 or 11 years. So that points out a really important um, reason why even very young families um, need to work on this estate planning um, piece of their whole financial picture um, because Although this is extreme, and I've been practicing law for 34 years, it's the first case I've ever run across like this, um, those sorts of things can happen. Um, an another example of uh, the absence of a real complete plan um, involved a friend of mine. Um, she and her husband had been married for 36 years. There was a significant age difference between the two of them. Um, he was about 11 years older than she. He had retired. She was still in her 50s. And he died unexpectedly. He had been the primary wage earner. All of the retirement savings were his um, in a 401k plan. And while she had been named the beneficiary, she hadn't reached the magic age of 59 and a half where she could access those funds 
without any sorts of penalty. Too young to get a, a Social Security survivor's um, benefit and um, no life insurance. And although they, they had a house that was paid for, they had a large 401k, she had no, no income, no way to support herself um, until she reached the age where she could either get the Social Security um, widow's benefits or access that 401k plan without paying penalties. As a result, she had to sell her house and um, leave the area where she had lived for, with her family um, for, and husband for the last 36 years. So, you know, a part of that picture, if, if they would have sat down and had a comprehensive discussion with someone about estate planning, it would have been um, a topic of discussion that there was this issue of a, you know, what if, what if the older spouse who was the primary wage earner were to pass away first, um, how would the spouse that was left behind um, just take care of day-to-day -day needs? So just a couple of examples of why everybody should plan ahead. And it's a, it's a thing that uh, estate planning is low on most folks' priority lists for a variety of reasons not a fun topic to talk about typically. Um, some people actually think it will hasten their demise if they sign a will. I mean I've had people sobbing in my office when they sign because they think that that's kind of the beginning of the end but um, I assure you it doesn't have any any impact um, and so in the whole theme of planning I thought we could talk about a couple of documents um, that should be a part of the planning process so you can make it easier for um, your family in the event that um, you're not able to uh, make decisions for yourself. Um, the first document that we're going to talk about is the durable power of attorney. Um, how many here have had a, their state planning documents done through trust services? So at least half of you. So probably as a part of your estate planning package, um, you did have um, a durable power of attorney prepared. This is not working quite as planned. So we have a handout that says at the top of it, durable probate information, durable power of attorney. So um, what is a durable power of attorney? The power of attorney is a document that gives someone the authority to manage your financial affairs. This person is called your agent. The agent can take care of um, your financial affairs um, as long as you're a competent. And if it's a durable power of attorney, it survives um, your competence. The durable power of attorney is the attorney that, or power of attorney that remains effective 
when you are unable to make your own financial decisions. Um, and if you want your agent to have the authority when you are unable to make your own financial decisions, your power of attorney must be durable. This is done by adding a clause to the document that makes it clear that you intend for this power of attorney to remain effective after your subsequent disability, incapacity, or lapse of time. And so powers of attorney, um, most people uh, have durable powers of attorney, unless it's a power of attorney that's just given for one limited purpose. Sometimes people give a power of attorney to allow somebody to do a um, real estate transaction for them, kind of a one-time thing. And um, those aren't generally durable, but most of the powers of attorney that we would do through the trust services department would be um, the durable variety. Um, but there are two different options with powers of attorney. Um, you can have them so that they're effective only at times that you're incapacitated and not able to transact business on your own behalf or they can be effective um, immediately as soon as you sign them and remain effective at all times until you revoke them. Um, and you might ask, you know, why, why should I care? What type of power of attorney if it's the type that's effective only on disability or the type that's effective at all times? Um, the, t the type of power of attorney that's effective only upon disability uh, requires an additional hoop to be jumped through in order to activate it, and that is um, a statement from a physician or psychiatrist is needed to establish um, that you're incapacitated and not able uh, to transact business on your own behalf. So um, some people don't want that extra step, um, but other folks want to make sure that as long as they're competent, they're the only ones signing their name to any documents. Um, and I sort of favor that idea. As long as I can transact my own business, I really don't want to give anybody else uh, that authority. So what sorts of things can someone do with your power of attorney? Um, they can sign your checks, make deposits for you, pay your bills, contract for medical or other professional services, um, sell your property, get insurance for you, and do all other things to manage your everyday affairs. So in essence, they can do anything um, with their signature that you could do with your own signature. And um, in order for a power of attorney to be valid uh, in Michigan, it um, needs to be signed by you and it needs to be notarized and there need to be two witnesses and within the last few years uh, there was an added requirement um, that whoever you name as your agent also sign an acceptance um, of that assignment to be your agent so that's an additional requirement that whoever you name has to actually sign um, the acceptance of, of agency. Uh, one of the commonly asked questions, why do I need a power of attorney if my, my spouse and I join, own everything jointly? 
If you and your spouse own a bank account jointly, then your spouse can sign checks and withdraw money from your bank account uh, whether or not um, you're able. However, the same is not true of other jointly owned assets. One of those would be st a stock. Another would be real estate. Um, your spouse does not have the legal authority to name or change a beneficiary on your life insurance or retirement benefits either. To provide your consent and signature to these legal transactions after your disability or incapacity, your spouse must be named your agent under a durable power of attorney. Um, and if uh, there is not a power of attorney in place and um, real estate would need to be sold or stock would need to be sold, the only remaining option is to go to the probate court and be named your spouse's conservator. So in planning ahead, we try to bypass uh, those reasons for, for going to the probate court. If you have a power of attorney in place, it wouldn't be necessary. Yes. Betty, with that conservatorship, I mean, there's a cost to that, right? That's correct. And it's, and it's, it's a process, so it's much easier to do this versus later having to go through all that. Yes, um, the, and not only is there um, a cost and a process, you now have the probate court in your business. You have to make annual reports to the court as to how um, funds were spent. Um, sometimes have to require or request permission from the probate court as to how um, funds would be spent. So um, in addition to the cost and the time savings, um, it's just you have a lot more control and a lot more privacy if you've done the power of attorney um, in advance. Eddie, can you clarify one of the Yes. Uh, you talked about how the uh, durable power of attorney now has an acceptance for the attorney, in fact, to, to sign. What about people that may have documents that predated that and don't have that clause? Are those documents still valid, or should they be updated? It, it's probably the best course is to update them because um, one of the the things you want to make sure of is that whoever you're presenting these documents to isn't going to question them. And so to have the most up-to-date documents is preferable. So the way that the person would know that is if they look at their durable power of attorney for finance paper, if, if it doesn't end with a place for their named attorney, in fact, to sign, then it's outdated. Would that be safe? That's, okay. that's absolutely correct. Um, Another question that comes up is whether or not um, you can name more than one agent or, or whether you can name um, an alternate agent in the event that your first choice is not available or able. And it is absolutely possible to name um, more than one agent to, to act jointly or you can give them the authority um, to act independently so that both say you have uh, two children that you want to name as uh, powers of attorney and um, you want either one of them to be able to transact business on your behalf. The document can be drafted in that fashion so that either one of them would be able to 
um, some folks want the collaboration or cooperation of their of two agents to so that both of them would have to sign off on anything but it can be done both ways also you can have it uh, have backup individuals alternates so in the event that your first choice is not available or able to act then you have um, someone else in place to uh, take over the responsibilities of being your agent um, can I make a durable power of attorney that becomes, becomes effective only if I become incapacitated? Okay, we already talked about that. Um, a question that's come up recently in my practice is um, someone called in to make changes for their spouse who's now in the early stages of dementia and really doesn't understand what's going on. Once, once you reach the stage of being uh, mentally incapacitated, can't be any changes um, to your power of attorney. It's set in stone the way it is. Um, but up until that point in time, you can change your power of attorney, change the, the agents, um, and you can also completely revoke it. So uh, just because you put a power of attorney in place doesn't mean it's there forever and always. You can um, revoke it pretty much in the same way that you granted it. In writing, it's best to have um, two witnesses and to have that notarized. And then the revocation is delivered to whoever your prior named agent had been and to anybody who might have possession of that power of attorney, your bank or um, insurance agents or anything like that. There are protections for for you as the grantor of a power of attorney, um, it, the agent, the named agent, is obligated to act in your best interest. And if they act in their own self-interest, uh, the remedy is for uh, someone acting on your behalf to seek restitution from or through the probate court if you're not able to to do that yourself if you've lost capacity so there is oversight in that way um, if somebody abuses the authority that you've granted to them and you can you can see that this is a really powerful document so whoever you name you have to have to trust very very much okay any questions on powers of attorney yes Power of attorney dies with you. So um, the, the moment somebody uh, passes away, whoever they've named as agent, no longer has any authority to act under that document. Um, and occasionally people try. They take those powers of attorney and try to scurry around and do some last minute things. I've even had a client do that. Yes? So a durable power of attorney, is that something you recommend to to families, even younger families, like in the case of like the children, or just mainly just wills. It, the everybody should have a power of attorney um, because you never know. No matter what age you are, something could happen. Um, you could be in an accident um, where it would be necessary to have something in place for an agent to be able to act on your behalf if you weren't able to yourself.
So if, you, if your power of attorney die, is no longer when you die, then it's your will is all that has to go on. Exactly. A will or a trust, whichever um, type of estate planning vehicle that you have. Is there already power of attorney in the package of the, we, we belong to Texas Conference and we have the state and trust planning. Is that already part of the paper? I'm guessing that's a part of the package. Because um, so. most, the, the basic estate planning package that um, most of the conferences provide would include a will, powers of attorney for financial matters, and powers of attorney for health care. But it's always a good idea to pull it out and take a look. And what if, like, I don't know the process, like we belong to Texas Conference, like if we move to another state, do we need to, can we carry the over or we have to apply to a recent state? Or um, it's, it's probably a good idea to have the documents looked at um, just to make sure that, that there's nothing that would need to be um, updated or changed. But in all likelihood, whatever you did in Texas is, would, would work here, but it's a good idea to have it looked at. For the conference? I believe that the conference would offer that service. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end, what we, what we offer the services. Yep, we do. Okay, any other questions on the financial powers? Yes. When you have a power of attorney and they overstep their bounds, is there anything you can do about it? If you are, um, competent and able to pursue that agent yourself, you can file an action in court to, to have the, by overstepping bounds, I'm assuming that there was some financial. Um, no, just committing them when they're perfectly a fine person. Oh, so we're talking about the um, more of the medical kinds oh, of things? No, that's fine. So that's what we're going to go into next, the, the health care powers of attorney. And so on the top of the sheet it says probate information, patient advocate designation, designating someone to make medical decisions. The Michigan statute that created the health care powers of attorney um, came to be shortly after a real high-profile case where um, a lady had had a traumatic brain injury and had been in a nursing home pretty much comatose for I think it was like 17 years um, and there was a big family fight over about what she would have wanted um, if she could have made her own decision about whether or not to have life support. Um, so the Michigan legislature and lots of other states as well um, passed legislation to provide for the opportunity to um, make those decisions and um, appoint someone to speak on your behalf in the event um, that you can't participate in your own uh, health care decisions. So what is a patient advocate designation? You have the legal right to make your own medical treatment decisions, but suppose something happens that makes you unable to make your own medical treatment decisions. 
Who will speak to the doctors? Who can choose a person? You can choose the person to make the decisions for you by signing a legal document called a patient advocate designation. And that's the same thing that I was just referring to as a healthcare power of attorney. This uh, legal document gives the person you choose, and that person is called your patient advocate, the authority to make the decisions for your care, custody, and medical treatment when you cannot. What if, what if I don't have a patient advocate designation? If you become unable to make your own decisions and don't have a patient advocate designation, the probate court may be asked to appoint a guardian to make decisions for your care, custody, and medical treatment. So just like with the financial power of attorney, if you, if you don't have one in place and it's necessary for someone um, to take care of finances, the same is true for health care. If you don't have someone in place, the probate court is the fallback position um, to approve medical treatments. And you could go into the local probate court for whatever county you live in, uh, and I guarantee you that one day a week, you'll hear hearing after hearing of people who are in there to ask for permission to be named a guardian so that a healthcare decision can be made for um, some family member or close friend. Um, so it's a real everyday thing for people who haven't made this plan ahead to, to do the healthcare power of attorney. Again, with the guardianship, there's a substantial amount of money that has to be put out for that. Um, so again, it's, it's better for you to plan, and that's the, our emphasis today, plan ahead before you need that because it's going to save funds, it's going to save headache, heartache of family members and all that by planning ahead. Yep, and it always, in those types of situations where it's some sort of emergent health care decision that needs to be made. There's always two court appearances. There's a, a t one for a temporary and one for a permanent guardian appointment if the person lives long enough. And um, so that the time that you spend not only um, going through the process of getting the documents ready but going to court and the expense uh, and ongoing reporting. Once a year there has to be a report to the court about how that guardianship is going. So roughly, what's the estimate on the cost? Are we talking $100 or are we talking $800? <coughs> oh, I would think that um, it would probably be at least $1,000 because um, the filing fees are significant, just under $200 for the filing fee. Um, and in those kinds of cases, the court also, in, in my county, also appoints somebody called a guardian ad litem that goes out and visits the person who um, the guardianship is being requested for to make sure that that's an appropriate thing and they report back to the court. So there's, so there's that guardian ad litem fee um, that also has to be paid as a part of the process. So can be fairly expensive. Yes? So. <clears throat> If a family member wanted to find out what's happening, they'd have to request from the court that report. Say you're saying that uh, uh, the guardian ad litem report. Yeah. That that is becomes a part of the court file if if there's a guardianship filing. So a family member would have to request that to see 
they're, what they're doing. The guardian at litem doesn't make any, any decisions about the care. They just make recommendations as to whether or not a guardian is needed. So whoever then is named the guardian by the court is the one who makes those decisions. And so that's the go-to person for the rest of the family. Yep. So Patty, so you may be getting to this, but with the HIPAA laws um, and all that is in place now, physicians cannot just talk to anybody, at least they're not supposed to. You may be, this may be your dad, but if you don't have this document, the physicians legally can't talk to you, so you're out in the cold not even knowing what's going on, right? Right, so that's another reason for the health care power of attorney. Because then somebody, then medical uh, providers have the authority that they need um, to actually provide information to whoever is named as the patient advocate. Does th that means like if something's happened to me, my wife wouldn't have anything to say over what happens to me. Or I'll I'll tell you practically speaking, when there when there's a, a husband and wife situation. Um, they will, the healthcare providers typically look the other way and don't request um, lots of paperwork, but they can. They can um, most physicians' offices have spouses sign off uh, releases so that um, the physician can speak to um, spouses about that sort of thing. But I think probably even in the absence of that, most healthcare providers will have some sort of discussion with a spouse. But the, the safest course really is to have the uh, patient advocate designation so that those releases are in there. So would you also need public notary or anything for that type of document? Those documents um, are effective with just witnesses. And um, that also is a part of the standard estate planning package that is um, done through the conference office and Joel will talk a little bit more about that I'm sure. That. Um, I know you said that, that usually physicians will talk to you through the spouse. Let's say you're going on vacation, you're here in Michigan, you're in Colorado, you get a car accident. I mean should, should we advise people that if you go on vacation you should probably take that document, put it in the glove box or something, because that physician's not going to know who you are, or is that just overkill? Um, it's probably not a bad idea, but with the technology being what it is now, it's usually pretty easy to to get it scanned and emailed or some other transmit it some other way. But I mean, it's always I mean, it saves time if you have it with you. Yes. So um, let's say you have a, a child that has medical issues. They're over the 20, age of 21. Right now in the hospital system, we have access to the doctors. We can talk to them. But what if they're in a different state, they're in a different health system? Would they be benefit from having uh, this paperwork? As well? Yes. Um, and in fact, I've, in the last few years, had Quite a few parents come at the beginning of the um, college school year when they have kids going off to college and get that sort of paperwork done so that they have the authority if, if their child is injured or gets ill when they're away at college that they can communicate 
with physicians. So what is your recommendation uh, as to the patient advocate having a copy of the document? For instance, uh, I have adult children, so I've named my adult children as my patient advocate. If my wife and I were in this accident, one of us was killed, the other was in a coma, and our children needed to make decisions for us, they may not be able to go to our house and get the documents and get the hospital time. Is it a good idea or a bad idea to give whoever you designate as your patient advocate copies of these documents to have? I think it's a good idea to give them um, copies of the documents. <laughs> we do have some folks that change their mind a lot about who they want to be <laughs> their patient advocate. So retrieval of those from the <laughs> the person who you've taken the authority away from becomes a little problematic, but for, for most folks that's probably a good idea to make sure that a copy is um, with the, the person that you've named as your patient advocate. So the question here is when can your patient advocate act, whoever you've named as patient advocate? And I think that comes to, to your question. Th they can only act if you are incapacitated. So you have, to, you have to be declared by a physician or psychiatrist to not be able to participate in your own uh, health care decisions. So they, those only become effective if you're not able to um, participate in your own health care decisions. So that hey, could be an on-again, off-again experience, right? That's correct. Once I get a car accident and I'll the rest of my life here, but I get out of the hospital and back, I'm Then you're your own spokesperson again, yes. Are you allowed to set it up so that um, you have contingencies, like if it's a married couple, then the spouse is the one, but if they are deceased or incapacitated, then a child, or do you have to do a new document? You do not have to do a new document. You can set it up so that there's um, an alternative uh, designation. Um, and these documents, just like the financial powers of attorney, whoever you've named as your patient advocate needs to sign the form saying, I accept that responsibility. So that's what um, makes them become completely effective. What are your patient advocate's duties? Um, your patient advocate must act in your best interest, just like with the financial uh, power of attorney. M uh, the patient advocate must make re take reasonable steps to follow your expressed desires, preferences, and instructions. And within the form that we use, we have you actually sign off on what level of uh, care you would want in the event that you were not able to participate in your own uh, health care decisions. Um, your patient advocate cannot condone, allow, permit, authorize, or approve your suicide or homicide. Um, your patient advocate cannot make life-ending decisions if you are pregnant. So there, those kinds of limitations are in the statute. Your patient advocate may withhold or withdraw treatment allowing you to die only if you clearly and convincingly authorize that um, patient advocate to make those decisions. So that has to be clearly spelled out in the document. 
The patient advocate's powers cannot be designated to another person without the patient's prior authorization. So this is the situation where you've named an alternate. You can, you can do that, but nobody can name an alternate on your behalf. And finally, the patient advocate cannot receive compensation, but can be reimbursed for expenses. Medical professionals are required to use sound medical practice. They also are required to follow your patient advocate's instructions if they believe your patient advocate designation is valid and your patient advocate is following the law. So you're the last word if you've put it in writing. Any questions on the healthcare power of attorney or patient advocate designation is the term I guess we're using here. No questions? All right. Yes. On both of the things, it's possible to two people jointly. It is. Can that set up a It can. Yes, if they don't agree. And I hear people say over and over again, my kids would never fight. <laughs> they will get along perfectly. Yeah. Yes, and then one an alternate, absolutely. Uh, even if you name two people, can one be have more authority than the other so that they can overrule? Um, I don't know if there's any legal precedent for that. I wouldn't recommend it as a practical matter. I'd it just bite the bullet and make a decision as who do you want to be primary and... Yeah, wouldn't you essentially have a primary and an alternate anyway if one has more authority? Right. That's, I guess that is what it would be by, by default. Yeah. Yes. Just wondering if there is a way to change this so that you do not have to have a physician or a licensed psychologist determine whether or not you are able to make medical decisions. No, unfortunately, that is part of the statute. And it's really kind of a, uh, a good thing so that, you know, my, my boys don't think, well, Dad, you lost your mind. But they can't right. act on it. That's right. um, I want to just have you clarify. So when you're looking for a patient advocate, who should you choose? And I've, I've got my own thought on this, but my thought, Patty, is that it's not necessarily the person that, that is the closest to you because your spouse may not be able to fulfill your wishes just because of the emotional... So it may need to be a brother, it may need to be a best friend, someone who's not even a family member who's saying, this is what Joel wanted, and they will have the, the, the boldness to carry out what I want, because my family may not want that. Does that make sense? That's absolutely true, because um, you're, the family members that are closest to you may have the most difficult time letting go if that's what your wish had been. And, and that's just, it's such emotional stuff. I think about the, the night that my mother died and the, um, you know, the doctors coming in and saying, we, we knew that she didn't want any resuscitation, but they come in and say, well, what do you want us to do? There's some hope. And so you start to think, uh, do whatever you can, keep her alive. But, you know, that's, uh, so you need somebody who really, has the courage to 
follow through with whatever your wish is, especially if it's the, the, the top choice, that they don't want any kind of extraordinary measures. That, um, that takes, takes kind of a tough person to do that. They do. I mean, they, they would have the, if, as long as they are still mentally competent, um, they're probably going to need the assistance of somebody else, but they can walk out of those institutions. They don't have to stay there. Um, if, if they're having lots of um, opposition, do they have just one child? Hmm. I would question how the, the medical advocacy ever even got into place. If yeah, if they're still mentally competent, then somebody's... Okay, so that's... A so probate court is their is the only recourse then, um, and they would need to get permission to have a, an independent evaluation done by a different physician and then have the court make a decision about whether or not um, the guardianship was appropriate. Yeah, so that would for sure require litigation. Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit about probate. Um, and that's a word that makes people shudder, but it shouldn't. Um, the, the popular position is that um, you should avoid probate at all costs, but I personally don't think it's a bad thing in most cases. So the, the handout that we're looking at says probate information, probate in a state administration. So what is probate administration anyway? Um, it's the court process by which the property of a person who has died is distributed. Since um, dead people can't sign documents to uh, uh, transfer real estate or empty out bank accounts, you have to have a, a live person to do that. A state administration after a person's death involves gathering the assets of the estate, paying debts and final expenses, and then distributing the remaining assets to whoever is de designated to receive those in the will, or if uh, somebody doesn't have a will, there's a Michigan statute that says how things get distributed if you don't have a will. And of course, this is put out by the State Bar of Michigan, so they have a nice little line in here. A lawyer can assist in every aspect of a state administration. But we know that that's not necessary, don't we, Joel? <laughs> lots and lots of people do probate estates without an attorney ever looking at a single document. Um, it happens every day. And in Michigan, we have a process that is pretty um, user-friendly. It's form-driven. Um, it doesn't require any court appearances in most cases. Uh, it's simply uh, preparing documents, submitting them to the court, um, and the probate register names or uh, signs what's called letters of authority that uh, designates someone to act as the personal representative. What are the assets that are owned by the decedent? That's one of the things that has to be determined early on. Um, there are jointly owned, solely owned assets are the only ones that come into the probate estate. So um, if you own real estate in your own name, you have bank accounts that are in your own name, stocks, 
that are in your no own name without any beneficiaries named. Those are the sorts of things that would come into your estate. Anything that you own jointly with someone else um, as rights of, with rights of survivorship, pass automatically to whoever um, that other joint owner is or any asset that you've designated that's uh, payable on death to someone else. Bank accounts can often be set up that way. Um, pass outside of probate. No probate would be needed to transfer those assets. Um, assets that are held in a trust um, would not become part of a probate. Question. An individual that you have joint um, ownership, ownership, survivorship, whatever it is, has debt, say medical debt. Does that fall on? Can they take, or would there be discrepancy on, the, on what they enjoy? Um, joint joint tenants with full rights of survivorship is we're talking about a piece of real estate um, they're gonna have a hard time attaching that um, type of asset it is I mean it, there is some risk involved but if it's joint tenants with full rights of survivorship um, if your joint tenant has a debt as soon as they pass away you become the only owner of it and so no no lien can attach to it. So it, it, it falls completely um, outside of the probate and there's no opportunity to collect a debt based on that asset. Um, recently, there has um, been a new tool in this whole um, quest to have assets pass outside of probate. And that's called a ladybird deed. And I'm getting more and more requests for on this type of deed and what the way they work is um, you can create a deed transferring uh, a piece of real estate to another individual and the the actual transfer does not become effective until your death but passes automatically upon your death so if you um, decide in the meantime uh, before your death that you want to sell that piece of property you're free to to sell it and keep all of the proceeds um, you can continue to to uh, deal with that property in essence as if the the ladybird deed didn't exist and then you, you can actually reverse the ladybird deed if at some point you decide you don't want that person to have the the property um, after you pass away so that's something that is being used more uh, and more as a tool to um, avoid probate if the primary asset that a person has is their um, home. To the, the, I believe it's still the date of death. I see you get a stepped up basis to the date of death. So then if a, a person only has a property uh, that would be, that would need to go to probate, mm -hmm. this ladybird deed might be an alternative to do instead yeah, if, if that's the primary asset and they want to make sure that their two children end up owning it jointly, that's, it's um, a good tool for, for lots of folks to just sort of button up the whole estate planning process. How does the Ladybird deed come into effect with the, I get Medicare and Medicaid makes up all that, the five-year look back? Well, since... 
Um, it does not create a problem with that because it's not a present transfer. And it also, um, there's nothing for a Medicaid lien to attach to because the property then transfers automatically. So in other words, if, if, I, if I create a ladybird deed today and a year from now I need to, to go into a nursing home. The house is still yours. And so that's not going to be part of the assets that, that they look at to say, okay, we've got to drain these assets before you can get Medicaid. It will have to be a part of the Medicaid application, but your home is an exempt asset. Okay. So it, it, if it's some other piece of real estate other than your home, then it could potentially have to be spent down. But as long as it's your residence, that's exempt anyway. at the moment. You never know if that'll change. Okay, so they spend some time here talking about um, assets that aren't a part of a probate. And typically, IRAs don't end up in a probate proceeding because they have named beneficiaries. So anything that you have named a beneficiary on passes to whoever you've named as your beneficiary. Same is true of 401k plans, life insurance policies, and annuities. You typically have beneficiaries on all of those. And then there's a whole little blurb about why you should hire a lawyer. And then I talk, talk a little bit about what has to be done in a probate process after um, the death of your loved one. And the first thing you have on the list is directives regarding funeral arrangements. Michigan has passed a statute that allows you to now have a document that specifies um, what sorts of funeral arrangements um, you want to have. Um, and frankly, <laughs> the Michigan Conference uh, approached me about discussing these with clients, and I, I have to confess that I haven't done it regularly because when I do, people say, why do I want to talk about that? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but the, the most... Um, Probably the most important uh, reason to have the document regarding funeral arrangements is if you want to be cremated because um, if you don't have it clearly spelled out, sometimes there are hitches with cremation if you can't get all the proper people to sign off saying, okay, go ahead with the cremation. So. Um, after someone has passed away, that, that document should be found so that um, wishes can be followed in that regard. Um, any prepaid funeral or burial contracts, original last will and testament, um, if there is one, trust agreements, if there is a trust agreement. Um, Premarital agreement, that doesn't come up very often, but some folks who marry for a second time uh, later in life and they have each of them have had separate um, estates acquired during their lives before they uh, remarried they have agreements about what's going to happen uh, with their assets after they die so those premarital agreements need to be pulled out um, any uh, bank account information recent statements for all the bank accounts safe deposit box keys if they're 
our uh, safe deposit boxes, retirement account um, information, titles to, to vehicles and other uh, <coughs> titled items, tax returns, yes. Can talk a little bit about the, the title situation, like when, when a spouse dies, and, you know, what, what is the process for that title to transfer to? Okay, I had said that anything that you die within your own, that's in your own name alone, you need to probate a state for that, but this is an example of where I made too sweeping a statement. If it's just, if, if you have um, just vehicles that are in your name alone, um, it's not necessary to have a probate estate for those if they're under $60,000 in value. There is a streamlined Secretary of State process that allows for the transfer of vehicles um, by just filling out a very simple little form, presenting a death certificate, and then those can be transferred to um, a surviving spouse. So there are a few, few things that um, can be transferred that way without a probate process. But if you leave one single bank account in just your name and you pass away, your spouse has to open up a probate estate of some type, maybe of the very, the, the small estate, very abbreviated process, but still a process is required. Okay, so another question. Um, there's a, a, a dollar amount that is below this dollar amount in this state, you don't have to Yes. Um, so to talk about that, maybe you were going to. That's the, what I refer to as a small estate. Yeah. Um, but if, this is something I found, that we had a trust that I was um, trustee of, and everything, the lady had everything in the trust except a few bank accounts. And the bank accounts were over that amount. But even if they were under that amount, the bank was not going to talk to me until I had letters of authority. So I, even if it was only a ten thousand dollar bank account, I still had. They weren't going to take the affidavit and assignment. Nope. Yeah, they, they, they said that I didn't take the letters of authority. So I had to open probate to gather those funds to put them in. Anyway, talk about the the level of, of where the small estate. There's there's something called a um, a summary estate or a small estate in Michigan, um, and that. The dollar amount changes um, based on over time it increases, and I just looked that up. I think it's twenty six thousand, but I might be it might be twenty two thousand. Yeah, I was thinking twenty two thousand. Then okay, so if the um, the estate after the payment of funeral expenses is less than twenty two thousand, then um, you don't have to do a full blown probate proceeding. It's this. Um, small estate process where you just basically fill out an affidavit spelling out what the assets are, their value, the dollar amount of the funeral expenses, and then um, that document is filed with the court and you, you're asking for, that those, uh, for those assets to be assigned um, to you so that you can liquidate the bank account or whatever the asset is. Does that answer it? Okay. And I think that I'm running out of time.
Well, any questions? If, if you don't mind, uh, people that call the office and are concerned about probate are usually concerned about two things, the people that I talk to at least. It's going to cost a lot of money, and then there are horror stories of my nephew's estate was tied up in probate for two years. Or four years, or, or ten whatever. years, it's yeah. Yeah. So could you talk about what some of the general costs are, but even more than that, what causes things to get tied up probate? Because as this document says, you know, five months maybe, you know, it can, it can be settled. There's, there's the four-month waiting period or whatever you want to... Claims so, period for yeah, creditors. Yeah. So maybe tell us some things that would cause probate to be tied up in a long amount of time and, and that may relieve some minds. <laughs> During the real estate recession from, what, about 2008 to 2012 or 13, Selling property, that kept probate estates open, waiting for real estate to sell. Um, I have a probate right now where there's a mesothelioma claim and they're waiting for all the claim to come in from everybody who made asbestos that this guy might have inhaled. That's been open for about three years. Um, but short of those kinds of things, a lawsuit that needs to be resolved or some asset that they're having a hard time selling there isn't really a reason for them to stay open generally for more than about six or eight months. But distributions can be made during that process of time? That's correct. Other assets. As soon as the claims period passes for creditors to present their claims and those, those uh, claims have been dealt with, there can be partial distributions. That day it was sold cash. That's way different now. Way different now. So the economy has... Thank you, sir. Um, so, what we're going to do real quick is talk a little bit about, and Pastor Gene, you want to hand these out? We're going to talk a little bit about what we can do for you, and, and when I say we, it's a conference, and Patty, she is the attorney that helps us with these documents, but um, your church, the Michigan Conference, um, is in our Plan Giving Trust Services Department, what we do is we help you get these documents in place. We feel it's very important that you have a power of attorney for finance and medical and you have a will in place, okay? So, we're handing out a card right now and if you do not have those documents in place, like I say, you, you, can, you can do one of two things. You can go to a local attorney and pay a lot of money to have it done, okay? Uh, and waste the Lord's money. Or you can come to us and believe it or not, our department will pay the fees for the attorney. Um, so, you can do one of two things. If you're like me, you're stingy, you're, you're scroogey, you'll, you'll come to the conference office, right? Because it's not going to cost you anything. But um, anyway, get these documents done. But if you want us to help you with the process, fill this card out and we'll be getting in contact with you. We'll have a conversation over the phone um, to see what your needs are. And then we'll make an appointment, come by, sit down with you and your spouse and we'll get the information together. We'll get it to Patty. Patty will draft the documents. She'll call you with a consultation. There's a process you work with her, and then we bring the documents back to you for signing. Okay? So that's kind of what the process that works. Um, there was a question. Do you guys still do the wills too? Yep, wills. Power of attorney for finance. I have one question. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with if something So, so the question is, 
that you've got it's a divorce and but you have full custody my son will be having full custody full legal and physical custody he should do that he should name a, a guardian but the reality is the other parent does have first crack at custody after if he were to pass away but that shouldn't pre, that shouldn't stop him from having a will done and naming uh, the guardian that he would prefer okay. any other questions on like the process and what we can help you with when it comes to to wills and yes you know what we are out of those sheets i think um but I tell you what, what we'll do is if you uh, contact us, Patty, the, if you can get that to us, um, give, give us an email. We'll get that to you, Don. Okay, so there's a question here that let's say let's say that you are moving to Michigan. And I'm going to kind of look at Patty as I say this. I don't want to go over a line I shouldn't go. But if you're from a different state, they, it's not necessary that you have to get a new will, but it's advised you do, right? Get a state-specific will. Is that correct? Or at least have the, the other states will review just to make sure it complies with okay. everything here. Okay, so if you're moving from a different state, you need to have that looked at. And what we'd do is you could call us. We'd probably get a copy of that we'd shoot it to patty she'd look over it and say well yeah or well no um and then we'd go from there okay but typically we had, we encourage people get a state specific will it's just be easier so any other questions okay yes one more over here life insurance yes. is that something that is recommended or not life um life insurance is it recommended um, it, it depends upon, and my, this is my estimation, if you have a family, um, yes, you should have life insurance, okay? Is it necessary when you're getting older and you're established? I mean, we, we've had situations where it's been beneficial to the conference. Someone had a life insurance policy, and her whole plan was to make it um, benefit charity. But, you know, the older you get and the more established you are, life insurance, in my estimation, is for that a stopgap. You're, you're a young couple. If your husband passes away and he's the, the bread earner, he should have life insurance so that the spouse and the children are not left out desolate. That's, that's my thought. Or in the circumstance where my friend, there was the big age difference, she had no way to support herself. Correct. And if that life insurance policy would have been going to her, then she would have been able to keep, keep the house and, and that level of uh, income. So, well, we need to stop. Um, tomorrow we're coming back again. We're going to look at one of my favorite parts of stewardship, and that's the generosity aspect, um, being able to be generous with what God has given you to be a steward of. So let's... Uh, you want to hand in cards? Yes. When you walk out, if you filled out a card, please hand those to Pastor Gene. And again, we'll be getting in contact with you after we recover from camp meeting. <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you that you have entrusted us as stewards. Help us to be faithful with all that you've entrusted us with. And as we continue to go about these, this campground, 
May your spirit continue to, to tug on our hearts. May we have a deeper conversion. May we, may we come closer to Jesus and, and may we see him come soon. But until that day, keep us faithful and help us to do the planning that is necessary to be good stewards. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.